0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome, welcome everybody. So it's kind of the tradition near the starting of the year. You know what, actually, can I have the volume just a little bit uh, louder so I don't have to project my voice as much? I think that's better. How's the volume for you guys, is it okay? Yeah. So it's the tradition near the beginning of the year to talk about some of the foundational teachings. And so I thought I would do a little bit uh, of that today, but I wanna talk about them in a different way, not the usual way. I'm often, I like to do this, not the usual way. Somehow. I don't know what that says about me exactly, but. Uh, and maybe I'll just uh, start with um, that the Buddha used a lot of similes and some metaphors. And part of that's what's the fun of uh, some of the suttas, is reading them, is really how the Buddha brings things to life but with these similes. A simile is a way in which, you know, something is like something else. So a simile starts with something, presumably, that you know and that you're familiar with. And then this new idea, whatever the Buddha's teaching, he's saying, oh, it's like this thing you already know. But for us, thousands of years later, we're having to imagine kind of what it was like, you know, for them back then. But I think we can. And many of the similes have to do with agriculture or animals or something like this. So, one thing I'd like to maybe, oh, maybe I'll just add a few things that somebody even counted, Caroline Rice Davids. Uh, she was one of the very first uh, translators. This is back in the 1890s. This is when the suttas were just getting translated into Western languages. So, this at the end of the 19th century. And uh, she counted, and I don't know how she did this, 568. Different concepts for which uh, the, the Buddha gave similes. That's a lot. That's a, you know quite something. Kind of he's loved to use this way for teaching. And then maybe I'll start with something that maybe would be more of a metaphor than a simile. If you wanted to get technical, but it's this idea that the Buddha's teachings describe a way to liberation greater freedom, greater peace, greater well-being. I mean, different people have different relationships to this word liberation. That's fine. You're welcome to have your own relationship with it and what it means to you and why you practice. But the the central premise is that there's a path, there's a way to get to this liberation, this greater well-being. And often this is a path. We describe it as a path And somehow this idea of a path, when we bring that to mind, it uh, often has a sense of, like, oh, yeah, there's a clear passageway through which a person or anybody, any creature, an animal. Excuse me. So a passageway. Hmm. I hope my voice holds up. I don't know what just happened with my voice. I'll drink more water. Now we'll see how it is. Okay, it's a little bit better this idea of a path to liberation is like this clear passageway in which, you know, a being can just walk along. But that's not quite the way that it is because when we have this idea in our mind of a path, it's often something that's there already and we walk along it. The sidewalk, the road, hiking trail, it's there already and we find it and we walk on it. But this path to liberation, maybe the pointing to it has happened before, but it's not necessarily like a clear passageway that just exists. Instead, we are creating it as we're walking it, as we're doing these teachings, as we're cultivating these wholesome qualities So we're practicing mindfulness, concentration, right speech, etc. So this metaphor kind of breaks down. uh, Because it's often we start to think like, oh yeah, okay, if I just get on the path and then it will be smooth sailing. But this kind of idea of a path is more of a concept. It's really things that we are doing, that we are experiencing in this moment. But to get back to this metaphor of the path, in the same way that, that we walk on a passageway or that we do Buddhist practices, when we're walking on a passageway, we bring all of ourselves there. Of course we do. We don't bring just one arm and leave the other arm back or you know something ridiculous like that. So in the same way, this uh, path towards greater freedom and ease and peace requires all of us, all aspects of us, all of us. Even those secret hidden parts that we're trying to wish would just go away or we don't even want to acknowledge that exist there. What's in our mind, what's in our hearts, what we say, what we do, its all of it is part of this path. And there's this metaphor, not only of a path, but that it was discovered by somebody that was uh, in the woods and say, oh, wow, I think there's a path here and chopped down some of the, maybe took a hatchet and chopped down some of the things that were in the way, found their way along this passageway, you know, a lot of work, and then they found this city, this beautiful ancient city that had been there. But it had been overgrown, and they cleaned it all up, and discovered, like, wow, this this place is fantastic. It's beautiful. And then this uh, individual went back and told the king and the queen, "Hey, I discovered this this path to this really beautiful location." And the king and the queen go, and they walk on the path, and they go to this beautiful place and say, "This is great. Okay, we're we're going to stay here." And we're going to move our kingdom here. And I first heard this story from Gil Fronstal. And for some reason, you know, back then I was really touched by this idea that he said, he said, it's meaningful that this individual went back and told the king and the queen, and then the king and the queen are the ones that are walking on this path. It's the sense of nobility a sense of kind of what's noble in all of us, kind of like to be to on this path towards greater freedom, or maybe a sense of regal, or you know, the uprightness, or something like this. Respect, a sense of respect for those individuals who are on this path. So, in this way, liberation is like this long-forgotten city in the forest, and but maybe. Just as it's possible, you know, anthropologists are doing this right in modern times, maybe just as it's possible to reclaim and then inhabit the city once the path is found, it is possible to live a life with greater freedom and ease and peace as we engage with this path. So, elsewhere in the suttas, there's a little bit more kind of a richer uh, description of this idea of a path that I'd like to share with you. And um, it takes place in the context of uh, one of the Buddha's cousins. His name is Tisa. Tisa, he was a monastic. He had ordained underneath his cousin, the Buddha. And he was having a hard time. And he says... I am dissatisfied with this spiritual life, you know, kind of this formal language, like this is not all I thought it was going to be. And he's saying, I have doubts about the teachings. So here's somebody who ordained, who decided to, you know, commit his life to the practice and after doing it for some time is saying, I'm dissatisfied and I have doubts. And the Buddha gives him some teachings and some of the teachings are a little bit, what I'm going to share here is a simile. So the Buddha goes um, and says to Tissa, he says, suppose there were two people and one was not skilled in the path and the other one was. And that individual that was not skilled in the path would question the one who was skilled in the path And the person who was skilled in the path would reply, this is the right way. Walk along it for a while and you will come to a fork in the road. Avoid the left fork and go down the right fork. Walk along it for a while and you will see a dense forest. Go through the forest for a while and then you will see a vast marshy swamp. Go through the swamp for a while, and then you will see a steep slope. Go down the slope for a while, and then you will see a level, clear parkland, a park place that's beautiful. So this is a little bit more descriptive. It's like, okay, go to the forest and hang a right, (laughs) go through the swamp and over the dell, through the woods, I don't know, these types of things, but... And then the Buddha kind of like, he unpacked that for Tisa. Well, what does this mean? What are How is this, uh, these different things that one would meet and walking this path? And that Buddha, he does give um, precise uh, instructions or descriptions, but I'm going to embellish them a little bit more for modern times and make them a little bit more um, relatable for us rather than just um, giving the simple answers that he gave. So he's st- so the uh, I'm sorry, the Buddha explains to the Tisa, in the beginning, the person who doesn't know the path or is not skilled in the path is you know, everybody who's not awakened. And the person who is skilled in it is somebody who's awakened, such as the Buddha. And then instructions was to go this direction and you'll come to a fork in the road. Well, what does the fork in the road represent? The fork represents doubt, the sense of, I'm not so sure about this, (laughs) This and this I'm not so sure about it can show up in a number of different ways, like, is this really going to lead to greater well-being? Or, do I really understand what the teachings are? We're all sitting quiet for 30 minutes, but am I doing what everybody else is doing? Am I supposed to be doing this? So we can have doubt about what we're doing. We can have doubt about the practice. We can have doubt about the teachings. Like, does this really lead to where that says? We can have doubt about the teacher. Does Diana really know what she's talking about? Or we can even say this Buddha person or whatever, right? So there's so many different ways in which the doubt can show up. And I love that it's just flat out there, doubt is going to arise. Instead of pretending, like, okay, as long as you just, I don't know, believe enough, it'll be fine. Instead, doubt is part of the path. It's part of the path. We are not asking people to just believe and don't have any doubt. It's the opposite. It's saying doubt is going to arise, And we work with doubt by investigating. There's a few ways in which we can do this. One is to gain some clarity. Well, what is it that I'm really vacillating about? What is it that makes me uh, hesitate? It makes me not quite sure if I really want to do this. And even just asking ourselves, what is it specifically? Just that activity of asking ourselves can help bring some clarity. Like, oh, I guess I'm just not sure if I actually can do this. It seems kind of hard. This whole meditate regularly thing. and People talk about retreats. I don't know if I can ever go on a retreat, if I want to go on a retreat. This type of thing. So first is just to investigate, what is the doubt about? Like, if you can, is there something that you're unsure of? And if it's about your own capabilities, maybe you can remind yourselves of how you have learned how to do other things. Drive a car, most likely. Ride a bicycle. Play an instrument. Maybe a different language. All these different things. And in the beginning, there's always this feeling like, I'm not so sure about it. If instead you have specific uh, doubts about the teachings, Buddhists say this, and in this tradition they say that, another tradition they say that, but what's the truth, and do I have to believe everything? Myself, myself I'll say, you don't have to believe everything. i really like to emphasize, this, this tradition emphasizes, and especially the way that we teach it here, is about what you can experience, what you can know for yourself. It's not about just taking on more views and beliefs we're not asking you to just swallow everything drink the Kool-Aid and <laughs> become part of the clan or something like that instead see for yourself see for yourself but if, you are, if there is some specific questions ask somebody ask a teacher read a Dharma book Listen to Dharma talks. Ask somebody else that you know. You know, is, there's a way maybe to engage with whatever it is that you have doubt about. And the teacher, the Buddha gives very clear uh, instructions on how to investigate a teacher. And even says that you should investigate a teacher. You should investigate whether they are exhibiting greed, hatred, or delusion. So you're welcome to examine me. I'm not a completely awakened person. I still have some greed, hatred, and delusion. But, you know, I'm up here. I'm just sharing it with you. I'm not deluded that I'm not deluded. (laughs) But... So this fork in the road is about doubt. And that doubt often, we maybe wouldn't assign the word doubt to it, but often it shows up as just kind of like this hesitation, like, I'm not sure, maybe. I think I, um, I think I had Gil just bringing him into the room uh, an earlier teaching that he gave. I remember him early, this was some t- many years ago, I heard him say, Yeah, well, maybe who knows? Maybe those who are practicing Sufi—they do a lot of dancing. They're maybe having more fun, so maybe that might be go over there. So I just kind of like appreciated this open-handedness, right? If this if this works for you, this is fantastic, and we're happy that you're here. But you don't have to stay, of course. So walking along the path, you come to a fork, and then the instructions were: don't go to the left, go to the right. So, on the left is this was the wrong path, and we and then the right is the right path. But what does that mean for those of you who are familiar with the eightfold path? They'll be talking about you know right in these eight elements versus wrong and these eight elements. But we're using this word right not in a moralistic way but in a way that this is like a the best tool. If this is the right tool. A screwdriver is the best tool for undo screws rather than a hammer, for example. So right is in correct or most appropriate. We could also say wise. I'll just briefly say what the Eightfold Path is. Wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, Wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. Here's the mnemonic that I use. Visa (laughs) Lemsi. View, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration. If you want to remember those eight, that's the eight that they are. Maybe I'll unpack some of them um, a little bit in a moment. But the interesting thing is, I think, so, so to go down the left would be to do, you know, wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, etc. But without going into all the details of exactly what they are, I think one thing that's interesting to point out is that the wrong, quote-unquote, just wrong in the sense that it's not going to lead you to greater peace and happiness and liberation in a stable way, is that it lures us. It's not like innocently uh, just there to the left, but there's a way in which today we have this new word that I learned recently, hyper-palatable foods. We have things that are just designed to be as delicious and as addictive as possible. They're purposely designed, this didn't exist at the Buddha's time, right? We have uh, advertising agencies. Their job is to convince us to do things, right? This didn't exist back then. We have media sources. Their job is to get us to click and to, you know, uh, get lost into that. Or there's other media sources. Their job is to get us outraged, right? So they are purposely trying to, I would say, maybe like lure us, you know, to this other way. So it's not so easy just to go to the right path. And part of it is because there isn't, like, maybe when you first go down this right path, there's you can't see very far. Maybe there's, you have to do a little bit of chopping away of the plants or the whatever's in the way of the jungle or something like this. It's not like you can see so clearly, like, oh yeah, I just have to go a few steps and everything's going to be fine. But The other way, they are luring us with like, oh yeah, this is going to be delicious, this is going to be fun, you're going to feel good. So just want to acknowledge that, that it's so easy to go down the other way. We all do in different ways, and we spend different durations of time down there. And if you find that happen, no problem. Just come back over. You don't have to go back to the fork, just hop over. I love this. We start where we are. And sometimes where we are is down watching uh, YouTube videos on some social thing, you know, for an hour and realizing, oh my gosh, you know, how did I find myself here? While we're eating potato chips or something. (laughs) (laughs) So then the um, instructions were avoid the left work, take the right way, walk for a little while, and you'll see a dense forest. And then you go through a forest. So the forest, we could say, is um, ignorance. And ignorance is defined as just not knowing. Just not knowing. It doesn't mean you're incapable of knowing, you just didn't know. So this idea of ignorance is often... The reason why, you know, I'm imagining that it's... We have to go down the right fork. We take that fork and go on the path a little bit. The first step in the Eightfold Path is view. And there's a way in which the right view, maybe I'll say briefly we can understand right view as... um, using a framework to view, to see our experience. there's two elements to this framework. This framework or this frame of reference is actions have consequences. Of course, we do. This is not news to anybody. But it's the thoroughness of this. It's that what happens in our minds has consequences. What we say has consequences. You know, how we are in the world has consequences. And just to recognize that. Everything has consequences. Really starts to highlight the importance of what we are doing with our life and how we're spending our time. And then when we start to pay attention to that, we start to realize oh, you know what? I don't actually know what my mind is doing all the time. It's ignorance. I don't know, you know, what I'm saying all the time. Sometimes things just come out. That's one framework with right view. The second is, there is a suffering and there's reasons for suffering. There's difficulties and reasons for difficulties. And there's not difficulties and reasons for not difficulties. This isn't news to anybody either. But just kind of as a framework to notice, like, oh, yeah, this is one of those difficulties. And sometimes it can be helpful to inquire, and what is the cause? What's underlying this? So, ignorance. When we start to have a little bit of right view, we start to see how much we don't know. Maybe we don't know what's underneath, what's causing the difficulties. Maybe we don't know how to have uh, less of the difficulties and to find a way from them or away from them. So this dense forest is ignorance and Often we have to pass through this and so much of meditation practice is helping us just to learn about ourselves. Notice what the mind likes to do. I'm often saying that I had no idea I was such a planner. I really didn't know how much I planned until I started a meditation practice. I was planning everything. So what other things are there to learn? meditation practice we start to do see what is our reactions when we're physically uncomfortable do we turn to like just anger or hatred or pity or you know poor me or you know what do we do what are the patterns of our life they start to show up in our meditation practice so kind of like going through this dense forest is part of this way of working through ignorance to the other side just learning about ourselves learning about the world with this practice and then maybe part of the other way to ignorance is just to acknowledge like you know what I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did about myself maybe just to know that you don't know that alone is such like a big step through this ignorance and then continuing in this simile uh, of this path after the forest after you get on the other side of that is this vast marshy swamp I like this idea of a swamp it's something where you have to tread carefully and you have to like try to find you know firm ground from one little area to the next and maybe take each step with uh, care so that you don't fall in with a quicksand or swampy swampiness so to like Seek out the solid ground at each step. So this swamp um, represents this seeking comfort or sensuality, things that are always pleasant to the senses. Incessantly, we are always looking for, you know, to be as comfortable as possible. There isn't anything wrong with that, right? We can definitely do that and still stay on... um, Solid ground without sinking into the swamp, but it's tricky because we can, you know, slide right into just pursuing pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. And you know, the psychologists have been talking about this hedonic treadmill a lot for years, they recognize the same thing, right? Then it's just never ending, there is no end. We keep on thinking there will be. Well, as soon as I get this, as soon as I do that, then I'll be happy. Hmm. Turns out it doesn't work so well, right? So this endless pursuit of comfortableness. And then maybe I'll say something that uh, I heard in an interview, um, I guess just a few days ago, I heard a portion of an interview, so just a little bit with David Goggins. He's this ultra-marathoner who like runs like 200 miles, or you know something ridiculous like this. Former former Navy SEAL, and I don't know all these like incredible things that he does. And uh, he says, "I don't like it. I don't want to do it, but I'm doing it anyway." And I thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, like, what what, uh, helps him to do this? And um, this interview was with a neuroscientist, and that neuroscientist was saying, you know, they just discovered that there's this area in the brain that um, grows when you do things specifically that you don't want to do. It doesn't count if you didn't want to do it, and now you like them. Then that doesn't count anymore. You have to not want to do it. And this, as this area of the brain grows, there's more ease and happiness. I hope I'm remembering this right, if with ease and happiness. I remember thinking, like, oh, I have to remember that for the Dharma talk. But uh, now here I am at the Dharma talk, and I can't remember it precisely. But this whole idea, though, and I think all of us know this, there's something that feels good when we're, you know, we do something that's a little bit difficult, You know, to apologize, to not eat the potato chips, or whatever it is. These things that make our life better. Otherwise, our life just gets smaller and smaller and smaller, like if we're only trying to be comfortable all the time. So the swamp of this pursuing sensual pleasures absolutely sensual pleasures are part of life joy and happiness is part of life I don't want to say it has to be austerity and nothing but difficulty but just watch how we are with uh, our sensuality we can get lost in there thinking that finally it will make it happy but I've, I've said this many times here Like, if it did make you happy you would not be here on a Monday night right? you would be out there doing whatever it is that makes you happy so after the swamp, then there was this steep slope. Like maybe we can even think of like a cliff or something like this. And the steep slope stands for anger and despair. It's quite something that the Buddha is just flat out saying this anger and despair. Or sometimes it could be dis- uh, translated as anger and distress. Some translators use despair but there's this idea that um, sometimes we, like if we we get a little bit angry that things aren't the way that we want them to be this is dukkha you know the Buddha's been pointing to this but sometimes there's a way in which we feel like well why not looks like this person has that, why can't I or you know whatever it is there's a way in which we can like feel a little bit angry or this despair, like, oh, I'm never going to get better. Things are going to be different. I'm never going to be different. And there's this way that um, we have this, this strong sense of self, we might say, that wants to be bolstered and protected and polished so that we're always looking good for other people, that we're looking good for ourselves. And as long as that's really strong and we're always trying to look good there will be anger and there will be despair because there isn't a self there isn't this core to which everything happens instead there's just this collection of experiences sometimes things look great and sometimes they don't that's just how it is So, this anger and this despair are part of the path of practice. It doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong necessarily. Sometimes it can be, but just part of the reason why I really appreciate this is the humanness that uh, the Buddha is bringing into this. So, at the, uh, and then after going through the forest, the swamp, the steep slope or maybe cliff, then you get to this, what uh, the Buddha described as this level, clear park. So if it's just easy, right? If it's level, you don't have to go up and down the hills. And it's a park. It's designed to be pleasant. And he's describing that as nibbana. But maybe, even if we don't aspire exactly for nibbana, maybe it's just a place that where there can be some more ease because of course there are times of more ease too it's not always drudgery through forests and swamps and steepness maybe there's we come to a you know a, a landing a plateau get our get our bearings rest for a minute and then maybe we can see oh yeah okay Now i think i can, time to go this direction And then at the end of this uh, sutta, the Buddha says to his cousin, Tisa. he says, Tisa, I'm here to advise you, to assist you, and to teach you. I appreciate this very much. The Buddha is saying, okay, you're not just out there on your own. Here, I'm giving you some directions. And we could say that all these suttas are about instructions and directions and this idea of a path shows up in so many different ways. And he's saying, I'm here to advise you, to assist you, and to teach you how to find your ways through the forests, the swamps, and the cliffs. So, with that, I think I'll stop and I'll open it up and see if there are some questions or comments. Do you want to? Um... Thank you. Sometimes I question why I meditate. Mm-hmm. However, after I meditate, I know why. <laughs> it's very simple because I feel better. You know? And does that is that work? Is when you're questioning why you meditate, do you uh, you're still able to meditate even though you're questioning? Why am I doing this? I don't know, but I'm going to do it anyway. Is it kind of like well, that? Well, kind of like that, yeah. But it's well worth it. Yes, it <laughs> even is. though I have doubts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, sure. Anybody else have a comment or a question? Maybe I will try over here. Can you walk a right little over to?
1: Thank you this is a comment more than a question just i've been listening to david goggins book on oh, yes. <laughs> audible i haven't gotten to the place where he starts running marathons but i do know he just got into the uh the seals so anyway it's fascinating about the uh, neuroscience yes. of that
0: yes um, it is fascinating uh, and it's uh interesting right to find that uh and I think we know, there's a part of us that recognizes when we accomplish something that's hard. There's like this uplift, like oh yeah, I did it. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I think the those neuroscientists they're always finding something. <laughs> Anybody else have a comment or question?
1: Uh, Diana, I'll um strengthen that comment about uh, Goggins, I heard the same thing from Jack LaLanne. Um, Most people don't even know who he is. But he, when they asked him, he said, I don't really like going to the gym. I don't really like going and working out. But he did, you know, and was able to make quite a career of uh, teaching exercise and doing these incredible you know, swimming, handcuffed, towing a, a rowboat behind him. What? It. Didn't you ever? He, he towed I just a rowboat know I'm doing like
0: jumping with jacks, like two like thousand
1: pounds in it. What? Behind him, handcuffed, from San Francisco to, to uh, Alcatraz.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So these amazing individuals. Okay. So they have something in them that. Uh, yeah. Nice.
1: But I, I sort of wonder there must also be some part that knows that there's a reward there yeah you know that there, yeah. that it isn't just i'm going to do this out of just some sort of ego thing
0: yeah yeah and i think today just because we're like it's the lure of uh, to not do difficult things is so strong Right? It's sometimes hard. And then the idea of doing something difficult looms so large in our minds. Like, oh, I can't do that. Because it's so much easier. All I have to do is click this or you know, open up the cupboards or I don't know, something, and I'll have something pleasurable. I don't want to do that hard thing. I don't have to do that hard thing or something. So maybe just having a regular meditation practice is the hard thing. Maybe coming to IMC is a hard thing. Anybody else have a comment?: Okay, OK, well, thank you all. and I wish you a uh, safe travels home. and may the path home be safe. And when you get to the fork of the road, <laughs> turn right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And if you have some questions, you're welcome to come up and uh, talk to me in private.